This is Laura looking for love. Today I will be talking about Chavela Vargas, a woman who became known in the Mexican ranchera music genre and who paved the way for not only female ranchera artists, but for the lesbian community in Mexico and Latin America. And someone I only recently discovered this weekend via a documentary. So I've been on this movie kick this past week and I love documentaries. So I happen to see a listing for this documentary titled simply Chavela, with this beautifully artistic movie poster image of her profile and her hand on her forehead as if she was reliving the most heartbreaking grief. And I looked at the description and I saw that she was famous for her ranchera music in Mexico. And although I'm not a huge fan of the genre myself, I clicked on the trailer because it was more of the emotions and the authenticity that I sensed in her that really drew me to take an interest in her. And when I started watching the trailer and I heard her sing, I could literally feel her grief in my bones and I got chills. And it immediately reminded me of the music that I fell in love with 20 years ago when I spent a year as a student in Spain. It was a different genre of music. The music I'd fallen in love with was flamenco and the music of the gypsy people, the gitanos. But there was a similar grief quality in it that really brought me back to this nostalgic place and connected with me. So one of the reasons I was never drawn to ranchera music was because I hadn't yet discovered a ranchera artist that resonated with me on a personal level. The ranchera music that I had heard in the past had undercurrents of national pride, community, and of course love, but it always seemed controlled with a lot of masculine influences, and there was a certain level of acceptability in the topics that could be sung. In comparison to the gypsy or gitano music in Spain, for unlike ranchera singers in Mexico, the gitanos had no reputation to lose. Their reputation was already tainted by this belief system that marginalized them from society. And in that space of nothing to lose, they could literally cry as they sang because there was no lower space for them to fall. So I, I do want to talk just really briefly about the gitano culture because it's a big reason why I was drawn to this. So the Gitano culture is one that is rooted in a lot of discrimination throughout Europe, but I was able to see it in person during my time in Spain. And although I had seen marginalization in America, the landscape of discrimination was always changing. There was the marginalization of African Americans during the times of slavery, and later during World War II, there was this focus on Japanese Americans during the internment era of being the enemy. And then, you know, fast forward to 9-11, and then the, the Muslim Americans were the target of the same marginalization. And while the institution of racism continues to persist in America in more subtle ways, the face of the enemy often changes. But in Europe and in Spain, the Gitano has been the constant face of the enemy. The ironic thing is that in the Gitano culture, there are two very different ends of the spectrum. And I know things have probably changed a little bit since I was there, but from what I read and what I mean, it's still there, that discrimination. But when I was there, it was literally two ends of the spectrum. On one end, you had the everyday Gitano citizen who was marginalized and was depicted as a thief, a rat, almost inhuman representation of society. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum were the lucky few who used their grief to catalyze music that resonated throughout the country enough to bring them fame and fortune. And while the rest of the Gitano population sang and danced privately and expressed themselves musically in their own communities, these lucky few broke through to the mainstream culture and became embraced and accepted, put on a pedestal as if their fame allowed them to release 
the scarlet letter of being a Gitano. So yes, for me, I could always sense their music was personal, filled with grief. And when I heard the singing of a Gitano vocalist, it sounded literally like the deepest weeping of a soul to the heavens, like a desperate cry for relief in a very cruel world. And even though I wasn't Gitana, I could relate to the level of grief, that level of desperation and sadness. And I was very jaded when I was 20. So I definitely understood suffering and the cries of the Gitanos comforted me because through their cries, I felt less alone. So this weekend, when I heard that voice of Chavela, it really took me back to my days in Spain when I discovered the music of the Gitano people. And so I went to see the movie and I would like to share her story. And there are two stories that I'm going to share. The first is the obvious one, the one told in the movie, the obvious story of the movie, which is one of a strong woman with a dream determined to break through in a sexist and homophobic time, place, and industry. And the other story is the one that isn't told, but that I could sense through the subtext. And it's a story of a woman living a double life and a great love story that she had never acknowledged. So, Tavella of Argus was born on April 17, 1919 in Costa Rica to a very conservative Catholic family. She attended a very conservative Catholic church, and in both of these spaces, she was outwardly shamed for the way she behaved and the way that she looked. Her sexual identity was one that she struggled with pretty much her entire life, and her family and her community saw that she was not like the other girls. There were even times that her family was so ashamed of her that when they had visitors, they would hide her in the back room so that they wouldn't have to acknowledge that she was their daughter. And the priest of her church shunned her in a similar fashion. The rejection of her spirit was just so much for her to bear that when she was old enough and but still a teenager, she moved to Mexico, which at that time was the entertainment and artistic epicenter of Latin America, this symbol of romance and artistic expression. So when she arrived in Mexico, she began to sing in cantinas and bars, and she started to gain a following and recognition. And one person who was influential in the ranchera music scene at the time was singer-songwriter José Alfredo Jiménez, who took her under his wing, and which only boosted her fame. But with fame also came the access to limitless alcohol. And although she loved performing, she would always need to take a few shots of tequila before getting on that stage because on that stage she was her most vulnerable she offered her raw emotions her grief her authenticity and it was all of those truths that made people fall in love with her and her music but to be so vulnerable was scary she had been rejected for her authentic self as a child and to relive that possible rejection of showing her authentic self would be devastating so she began to rely on this liquid courage and then it just became a way of distraction a part of being in the music scene which was also predominantly male and one where she constantly rode the line of acceptability and what she was able to portray both on stage and off. Although everyone knew that she was a lesbian, it was only ever assumed. There were rumors of her being a womanizer, stealing the wives of famous actors, politicians, and singers. Because she had this great presence about her, people said that she, even straight women would never resist her charms. She never outwardly stated that she was gay, until maybe she was, I think until she was 81, she finally said it. But for most of her life, she never outwardly said that she was gay. And in an interview, one person had said, you know, in Mexico at the time, there was this hypocrisy that on stage, everything was accepted. But off stage, it wasn't. So on stage, Tavela was allowed to be a lesbian. She was allowed to have this grief of losing a lesbian love. But off stage, if she had stated this plainly, she would have been harshly criticized and marginalized. So, in other words, the stage was reserved for fantasy, make-believe, and dreams that were only allowed to exist in the smallest and most restricted spaces. So what really struck me when she was interviewed was that she seemed like a completely different person than the one I had seen when she was singing. 
As a singer, she was this free expression of emotion full of love. And offstage, when asked if she believed in eternal love, she said, nah, that doesn't exist. Just very matter-of-factly. As if everything that she represented on stage suddenly disappeared the moment she stepped off of it. So in real life, she was very guarded, not allowing herself to love in the slightest. She jumped from woman to woman, and even when she talked about Frida Kahlo, one of the greatest loves of her life, she spoke of the time that she last saw her and what Frida had said to her. She said, you're going to leave me, aren't you? And she said, yes. And Frida re responded in this very romantic, artistic expression, you know, being an artist, then I cannot contain you, I'll let you go. But on Chavela's end, her leaving was not that in that same energy of purity of love. It was more of a fear. She needed to control the relationship because she could not be rejected. And from a woman as high profile as Frida Kahlo, in her mind, she would eventually see too much of who she was and potentially unlove her. And for Chavela, this rejection, this abandonment would be just too much for her to bear. So she must be the one to leave. And to not believe in eternal love was her defense mechanism. It would be easier to not believe in it than to know it existed and to be without it. So Chavela lived her stage life and her private life until her alcoholism became so crippling it stopped her career for over 15 years. By the time she was middle-aged, she had dropped off the map, and people literally thought she had died. So she was broke and irrelevant in the public eye. And to her, this irrelevance was like death. And during this time, she met another woman, a younger woman, and they began a loving relationship. She was given the support she needed during a really dark time in her life. But because she wasn't able to handle the alcohol and the loss of her career, she began to take her rage out on the relationship. And in the end, her partner decided that if she stayed, they would eventually end up killing each other. So she decided to leave. And it wasn't a decision made out of hatred, but rather respect of each other's spirit. And sometimes soulmate relationships are only meant to be temporary, to get us through our darkest times. And when the time comes that the relationship becomes codependent and unhealthy, it's time for separation. And although from an outside perspective, we can see this to Chavela, her leaving was an action of pure abandonment and betrayal. And during an interview, when asked about this relationship, she could only minimize its importance and remembered it as purely an experience of being abandoned. And for Chavela, her core wound of abandonment as a child was something that she struggled with her entire life. And while the documentary commended her strength and her determination to continue on her path in music and carving this name for herself, it doesn't quite look at the reason she is so adamant about her relevance as a singer. And sometimes when we crave relevance and fame, it is because we require it to fill the emptiness of spirit. The wounded soul that was punished as a child for simply being who she was constantly required the validation of others. This void of self-love and self-acceptance was so great that she required a constant audience applauding her. One person had stated even that, quote-unquote, Chavela is so vain. And she spoke of the time at the end of her life when Chavela still needed to look a certain way, even into her 90s. And when we think of vanity, we think of people being full of themselves, right? But really, it's the opposite. They are so empty that they require the approval of others to fill themselves up. They need to maintain a certain image. For if they aren't at their best and they are criticized or condemned, the words of disapproval could shatter their fragile souls. And this was Chavela until the very end. She made a name for herself in Mexico, but she wanted to make a name for herself in Spain and in France and in the USA. Her void was so big she required countries to fill the love she could not give herself. And while she did make a comeback in her 80s and 90s, filling huge theaters that she had never experienced in her younger years, I don't think she ever got to the point where she understood how to truly love herself. 
and I don't think she even realized how much others loved her. She saw love in the context of romance, and it was evident in the way that she sang about lost loves. But the biggest soulmate relationship she had ever experienced in her life was one that was really unexpected with the brilliant Spanish director Pedro Almodovar. By the end of the documentary, she decides to go to Spain to perform for the people there. And by this time, Pedro Almodovar had fallen in love with Chabela and her music. And when I say fallen in love, I don't mean in the romantic sense. She was a lesbian, he is a gay man, but he could feel her emotions, he understood what she was saying, and he used many of her songs in his movies. He said that her songs helped to breathe life into the script and that they became eventually inseparable. And through his movies, Spain came to know Chavela as well, and they accepted her for who she was and they loved her. And this was the first time that Pedro Almodovar met Chavela when she came to Spain in her 80s. And they began this beautiful love story filled with support and kindness. She had given him inspiration and, and raw emotion through her songs for so many years, and he had grown to love her in such an unconditional way that he helped her to fill her love void the final years of her life. Chavela always wanted to perform in the big theaters in the world, in Mexico, Spain, and France. And Pedro Almodovar helped her to realize this dream. So in Mexico, even as a star in her youth, people would hear her records, but she would only perform in the small clubs. So Pedro set out to give her the stage she had always wanted. She had this dream uh, one year to perform in France. And although her music hadn't yet reached France in those days, Pedro contacted his connections in France, only to be told that they couldn't support the concert, that they didn't believe that anyone would buy tickets to see someone that they didn't know. They said that the only way they would hold a concert was if he would be financially responsible for a profit and any loss would be his personally. And he agreed. And he never told Chavela this. So he ended up doing promotions throughout France. And a week before the concert, or days or a week before the concert, the tickets were just not selling. No one was buying tickets to see her perform in this huge theater. So he got on the phone and he personally called everyone he knew and told them to tell all of their friends to come. And by the time the concert came, the venue was sold out. You know, and the whole time he never told Chavela anything that was going on because he knew that it would kill her spirit. He said that he had never worked so hard in his life to get people to an event. And it was one of the greatest gestures of love to provide Chavela with her dream, not so much of an artist, but really of a spirit who is not only being acknowledged, respected, and loved by a few, but by hundreds of people in one moment showering her with adoration. For Pedro Almodovar understood if she had walked onto that stage with an empty audience, it would have killed her spirit, and she would have relived the worst rejection of her life, that of her youth. And that is really the job of a soulmate, to love unconditionally and to nurture and protect your mate's soul. And that's what he did. His love for her flowed through the theater, through the audience, and became so great that it filled her with validation of who she was. And in return, she shared her love in the form of her music. So one woman had said that Chavela's wish was to die on stage. Her last performance was the day before she died, so she didn't quite get that wish. But while it seems like a joke that she'd wanted to die on stage, for her, it, it really would only make sense. For a woman ha who had lived such a double life and who showed herself authentically on stage, really her longest love affair was with her audience the people who loved her when she was at her truest and most vulnerable. And as lonely as she was, to die on stage would seem fitting to temporarily relieve that loneliness. 
So at the end of the documentary, we celebrate a life of struggle that had overcome many obstacles and who had made an incredible comeback in her final years. But the other story was the one of her private life, one struggling with self-love and self-acceptance, one that had been shown examples of great love. And beyond the story of dreams, love, acceptance, and soulmates, it's also about the story that we tell ourselves. And because she was such a fragile soul, she told herself stories that weren't true, like the story of eternal love not existing. And because she told herself these stories, when it did appear in the form of Pedro Almodovar, she could not recognize it. So final question to consider. What are the stories that we tell ourselves? And are they really true? So I'll leave you with that. And next week, because this talk about Spain is getting me nostalgic, I'm going to be sharing some personal stories. And it will be my love story with Spain. So for more info on empowerment services, visit thebonsaibabes.com. And I will be back here next Friday.